child, who's going to do your hair if you take off to Holland with this man? Challenged a voice inside my head, not even a minute after my Dutch boyfriend of two years asked me to move back home with him. And rightly so, because Holland wasn't exactly known as the Mecca for black hair care. It wasn't like when I'd moved to Washington, D.C., a.k.a. Chocolate City, where I could get my done on every other street corner. Girl, you best be asking him if there are any black people over there, needled the voice before I could find an answer to the first question. Now, you don't want to get over there and have those people ready to lynch you. I knew Vince was waiting for an answer, but I couldn't stop my eyes from darting around the den of our rented duplex in New Orleans, where we'd been living together for the past year. My gaze stood still on the computer I'd charged to my MasterCard and was still trying to pay off. Instead of meeting Vince's blue eyes, I focused on the built-in bookshelf filled with the books I'd collected as a graduate student of Latin American literature. Each title glared back at me as if to say, in Spanish no less, you are a strong, independent Black woman who has supported herself all her adult life without the help of any man. Are you going to let this man, this, this foreigner who doesn't know jack about what it's like to be a Black woman in America, take away everything you've worked so hard to get? Doesn't he know that Black American women don't have the option of throwing caution to the wind, packing up and running away to an exotic country, and with a white man no less? Doesn't he know that Black people need other Black people around? And doesn't he know that not everybody can do a Black woman's hair? Obviously not. Otherwise, he wouldn't be asking you to give up everything you know. This week on the podcast, we have Carolyn Venice Vine, the author of the book, Black and Abroad, Traveling Beyond the Limitations of Identity. Carolyn, I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you, Tiffany. And I am so excited to be here talking to you. This is really a... Uh... An honor. Just starting off with the introduction of your book is an amazing start to the conversation that we're going to have today. So I think it would be good to kind of start off with talking about your book and how this even became a project. What made you decide to write this book? When I think about it, um, because it was uh, quite a while ago, I think I started writing this in 2008 or 2009. Um, oh, I know what it was. I think I had just read Eat, Pray, Love Oh, by Elizabeth Gilbert. That's what it was. And I remember reading the first, I think, 50 or maybe 100 pages of that book. That's what it was. And I thought, well, this is all good and well, but this is not my story. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is so, and, and I, I hesitate to say this, but look, this is what I was thinking. So I'm just going to put it on out there. Yes. <laughs> because I remember even thinking, you know, and this is so typical because here you have this voice of, let's say, middle upper class white woman who is thrown out of kilter because she goes through a divorce. She's had everything and she gets divorced. Her whole world is just blown away. And I thought, but, you know, how many black women, me included, have had to deal with so much and we have kept our together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we have gone on. We haven't gotten book deals. Huh? Mm. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to write a book to inspire Black women to get out there and travel. And that's what started the, the book project. Yeah. And see, I'm wondering, because when you're writing this book, you're in Holland when you're reading yes. Eat, Pray, Love. And from this book, you're saying, I want to create, you know, I, I want to share a different narrative, an alternative narrative. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and some of the experiences that you had in the States. I am originally from Indianapolis, Indiana. The interesting part, um, and I, I hope this answers your question, the interesting thing about Black and Abroad, I, do, I don't think it's necessarily a book about race, per se. Growing up in Indianapolis, 
I, I grew up in, in government housing, so there were no white people there. I grew up with the, with the understanding that in order to be anything in life, I had to study. I had to be a good student. I had to always be better than white people. I couldn't be equal. I had to be better. And I grew up with a lot of stories about white people. Um, but interesting enough, I didn't spend a lot of time around white people. Mm-hmm. Um, not until I was bused to, uh, junior high, it was junior high school back in my day. Now it's middle school. But my friends and I were bused, I think about a half an hour away to a predominantly white part of the city. And I do talk about this a bit in the book where I was, I was afraid. Because I'm thinking, you know, I, I had seen Roots. I mean, Roots. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw it when it was on TV. And um, so I'm thinking, oh, my God, what are they going to do to me, you know, at this white school? Nothing ever happened. There were no race riots. Um, nobody ever called me out of my name. Of course, if I look back at um, how I experienced junior high school now, maybe some of the teachers and maybe some of the students were racist. But back then, I didn't experience anything untoward, I, I have to say honestly. So my experience in Indianapolis, although it was predominantly white, although it was very, very conservative, I think my upbringing was, at the time, I considered it normal. Yeah. Um, and of course, it wasn't until I left, uh, because I left Indianapolis when I was uh, 25. That's when I moved to the D.C. area. And it wasn't until I decided to write the book that I really, like you said, unpacked a lot of stuff, a lot of, let's say, different garments huh, that that were just all thrown in into my uh, suitcase back then, you know, I guess I could say I just threw everything in there, you know, all the issues of identity, my relationship with my mother, the the traumas and the tragedies of my childhood, you know, the, you know, white people, the black people, I just looked through it all in there, closed the suitcase, and I, you know, I cut out. And it wasn't until I decided to write the book that I put the suitcase down and opened it up and literally just, you know, saw this, you know, mess of outfits, let's say. Um, And I just started literally, you know, one memory because, you know, each each garment represented a memory. And I just started taking one memory and looking at it and, and writing about it. So that's uh that that's how this book came to be. Yeah, I love this idea of garments because it really does create this idea that a shirt is representing this experience and these pants are representing this experience. And I think what's fascinating about the book is that, you know, you're not only talking about your romantic relationship with who is now your husband, you're talking about the relationship with your mother, you're talking about the relationship, like you're saying, with your schooling experiences. So I'm hoping that maybe we can start with your relationship with your husband. And then Mm -hmm. while we're talking about that, kind of unpacking some of those comparisons that you're doing in the book, as far as how you created this identity, based on unpacking some of your mother's and grandmother's identity. Um, yeah, as you heard in that excerpt, I came to the Netherlands because uh, back then my boyfriend, yes. I had, um, well, he's Dutch, and I uh, met him at the hotel where he was working in uh, Washington, D.C. And so one of his bartenders, because um, he was a supervisor of um, food and beverage, um, one of his bartenders was also a colleague of mine at uh, the university where I was doing my graduate work. And friends and I would just go visit him uh, because he gave us free drinks. Right. <laughs> oh, this is because in the book you were like, yeah, because usually we wouldn't be able to afford this amazing ambiance. But since we know the bartender, we're going to go hang out. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, but sure, that that's how we met. We, we were friends for, I think, the better part of a year before we started dating. And that was right before I was, um, due to go study in Spain for a year. 
So I did that, um, never expecting what, oh, more than 20 years later to still be with, with this man. So it was a summer love. He was supposed to take, um, a job, uh, in a hotel that was going to be built. And at the last, you know, down in New Orleans, because we moved there together for a year and, uh, the financing fell through. And so it was a, a, a perfect time for him to decide, okay, do I want to stay here or do I want to go home? And he wanted to go home. Yeah. And he asked me, so, you know, would you be, you know, open to moving back with me? And at first I said, no, because, you know, <laughs> what am I going to be doing in, in Holland? And then also you were questioning, and who's going to do my hair? <laughs> well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> and it's really funny because before I went to Spain, even I had gone to get my hair done for the last time. And my beautician was like, what kind of protection are you going to have for your hair? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she broke it down. She's like, well, who's going to do your hair when you're in Spain? Is you, do you have anybody to do your hair? And I was like, no, I don't have anybody to do my hair there. After a, a week or so, you know, we talked about it and just talked. Yeah, just really talked about it. I said, well, okay, let's, I'll, I'll try it for a year. Let, let's, let's do it because I, I was 30 and I was wanting to, um, you know, pursue this relationship. Um, so I thought, well, you know, I'll never know if there's something there if I don't go. Yeah. And so, uh, so we went. I think what you're doing in the book is kind of hitting on a lot of, like you're saying, issues that you had with the way that you had been conditioned by your mother, issues mm -hmm. that you had as far as what it meant to be a Black woman in America. So it is like this ambiguity of what Blackness is. And maybe we can even start with New Orleans, some of the things that you were seeing while you were there that just was a distaste. Yeah, yeah New Orleans was, um, you know, it, 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 yeah, it was a, it, it was a trip, really. Um, Vince and I, well, Vince took a job at a hotel uh, where he was the, the manager. So I guess it was a little promotion of the food and be beverage department at a uh, luxury hotel in uh, New Orleans. And I took a job at Tulane University mm -hmm. teaching Spanish. And, and the idea was for me to finish up my PhD while I was down there. So one of the things that we did that we liked to do, we would go out to eat at these really nice star restaurants for research, of course. And so um, I would be sitting in these restaurants with him and I would notice that all of the waiters and waitresses were white, um, whether they were adults or college kids. And then I noticed um, that come time to clean off the tables, the bus people were black. And I thought, now, wait a minute here. You know, mm -hmm. we have some, you know, really top black universities down here. Mm -hmm. How is it that you, 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 there are no black waiters? And that just, it just didn't sit right with me. I thought, well, the, you know, this is kind of um, strange. So things like that, things like, um, and I, I wrote about this in the book at Mardi Gras time. Yeah. Um, it, it was a, a, an amazing experience to be there um, for the two weeks before Mardi Gras, where you had all the, the parades coming by at all different times of the day with the big floats and, and so forth. Uh, there's this tradition of throwing beads from uh, uh, these bead necklaces from the floats. And I remember uh, watching once, and um, Vince wasn't with me because he was at work. I, I remember there were some beads thrown, and there's this little black boy, I, I think, who maybe seven or eight years old. Well, he and this white woman were going for the same beads. You know, she's kind of grappling with this little boy, for this, you know, strand of beads. And I can't remember who got the beads, but I'm, I was sitting there thinking, wow, seriously, this, mm -hmm. he is a child. Mm -hmm. So kind of, you know, stripping this little boy of being a child. Um, and I think this has happened a lot in the black community, um, especially for little black girls where we're not necessarily seen as cute little innocent 
girls. Yeah. I think somehow we are, I think, sexualized at a much younger age. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that's the same today, but, you know, I can only speak of, you know, how I perceived it when I was in the States. That perception was there that, that little black girls are, are sexualized a lot sooner than white girls. Yeah. Just as I felt like this little, um, black boy, he was not allowed to just be, you know, a pain in the ass little boy, yeah. you know, as little boys are, you know, that he's going to come and take this necklace. So those types of experiences really got to me so that at the end of the year, I was glad that we were leaving. I, I was glad because if, if I had not gone back to the Netherlands, I would have left New Orleans um, because it just wasn't my place to live. Wonderful city. It's, uh, I would um, suggest, recommend to anybody, go to New Orleans. Um, you you got to experience it. it, it it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating city. And I think, I think what's interesting, particularly about the way that you talk about race, although you say that the book is not, you know, particularly about race, it more, it, 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 I guess it is very intersectional because you're talking about many identities. I want to talk a little bit about some of the conditioning that you felt you got from um, your mother. I think more than anything, you know, that that's a great question because I've never really looked at it that way, but gosh. But I think when you ask that, the one thing that came up uh, for me was really about the, the image of a strong, independent Black woman because my mother was the epitome of the strong, independent Black woman. So here's this woman who uh, had, okay, my mother was, was, and I say was because she just passed away um, this year of COVID. Yes. Um, yeah. My mother was was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. Um, and funny enough, um, at um, her uh, memorial service online, her contemporaries, so her cousins, were saying the same thing. They're like, you know, Carolyn, we. I just always thought your mother was just this beauty. Um, one of my cousins said she reminded me of a Barbie doll. So, you know, she oh, was this wow. light skinned woman with this, you know, beautiful, long, quote, unquote, straight hair, just amazing. Um, but my mother had raised me to believe that dark skinned black w- women um, would never be my friends, would always be jealous of me and would dislike me because that was her experience. Yeah. Um, she had issues because she was light-skinned. Interesting enough, I never had those experiences. I was waiting for it to happen. You, know, <laughs> you were prepared. Like, okay, so, you know, when's, you know, somebody going to run me home and beat me up? <laughs> but I always thought, you know, when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm not light-skinned. I'm not dark-skinned. You know, I, I look black. I don't look white. So you know what you're getting when you look at me, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, so that was one thing, you know, this um, divide between light skin, dark skin, good hair, bad hair, all these things taken from slavery, post-slavery on mm-hmm. up um, uh, to now. Um, but like I said, she was the epitome of a strong, independent black woman. She um, had four children. Um, she was married twice, divorced twice. Um, she was a, a single mom. You know, she worked every day. She refused to go on welfare. Um, so she worked as a secretary um, and would come home and in the evening practice on her stenography machine because she was bound and determined to get yeah. back into court reporting. Yeah. So I saw this, you know, her sitting there for hours practicing on, on her um, stenotype, I guess you call it, um, machine. And all of this um, while being mentally ill because she was schizophrenic. You know, on top of this, you know, having lost my brother and sister, Um, my brother was 20 when he was killed and my sister was 15 when uh, she passed away of a, um, a very rare type of anemia. And during all of this, you know, my mother went to work every day because she had to. Um, you know, if she didn't work, then we wouldn't eat. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't uh, uh, have a place to live. Or at least, you know, that's how I understood it. Um, you know, her biggest thing was she never wanted 
us to be taken away from her, you know, to give us, you know, lose us to the system. So she fought damn hard to, to keep what little bit of family together that, that we had. I always, you know, put her there as my image of the strong, independent black woman. So I had to be just like that. Right. I had to keep going no matter what. I had to keep striving. I had to be the best, you know, and I had to be careful of dark skinned black women, women. Right. <laughs> so when I came to the Netherlands, a lot of that was just, you know, blown wide open. Yes. Um, because. You know, I, I was confronted, you know, my first year with the, with the Black Pete thing. Um, and I, I remember my husband, you know, saying, um, at one point, Oh, well, Carolyn, just, you know, you should put on, cause I was wearing a black beret back, I was sporting a black beret back then. And he's like, Well, Carolyn, if you don't straighten your hair, so wearing it like this, he said, if you put your black beret on there, you know, they might think you're Black Pete. And I went off on him oh, when wow. he said that. <laughs> <laughs> when I remember going off on him and he looked at me, he's like, oh, I didn't mean anything. Right. And the funny thing is when I went out um, into the streets and uh, started seeing, you know, the images of Black Pete, I thought, well, I guess with my hair like that in the beret, I guess I would look like yeah. it a bit. Yeah. Take a second, but, please. Take a second to uh, explain the Black Pete parades that happened there. Well, the, the Black Pete thing, um, Center Claus, so right around, actually on Saturday, you have uh, Center Claus. It's like Christmas here, um, where you have white Santa Claus figure. And then you have his little helpers, um, you know, so the Dutch people, you know, well, it's basically black. It, it is blackface. So yeah, they will paint yeah. their faces black and they have the thick red lips and, you know, the, well, the beret. And, you know, they're just kind of, you know, out throwing candy and cookies and, you know, just acting really silly, just having fun. And the kids love black people. So I was confronted with this, you know, my first year. And I'm like, oh, what did I get myself into here? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I talked to, you know, really talked to my husband about that and, you know, just started, you know, explaining, you know, what blackface was and how offensive it was to me. And, you know, he got it. You know, I talked to his parents and we've, you know, over the years had long discussions about black people. Um, and I told my husband, you know, I don't mind celebrating, especially when once we had children. I said, of course, we can celebrate Center Claus. I said, but um, there will never be an image of Black Pete in my house. Mm. Um, and there never has been, even though it <clears throat> I still don't believe it is meant as it was meant back in the early part of the 1900s um, with minstrelsy. It is still offensive. Yeah. Um, Do people actually put like figurines of Black Pete in their homes? Well, uh, figurines like, um, you know, you have wrapping paper. Black um, Pete have, wrapping paper. <laughs> you have Black Pete, you know, wrapping paper with Black Pete on it. No. You have decorations with Black Pete on it. No. Um, and it's um, funny enough, it hasn't been an issue this year, I think, because of COVID, because you can't have big meeting, you know, groups of people. But in the last few years, it's been a it's been a big issue here in the Netherlands, you know, where uh, more um, I think it's come more from the outside than it has from the the Afro-Dutch mm -hmm. population here because they grew up with it as well. And they, you know, not everybody, I, you know, I can only say I had talked to a few women um, more my generation um, from the islands who had said, well, for them, you know, it was just how it was. They, you know, they just grew up with it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the generations after me are more conscious of the or the racist um, part yeah. of Black Pete. I want to connect this to you and Vince's relationship because this is not, you know, the only time where it was a little bit of explaining about your history and, you know, who you are as a black woman. You also talked about like going to New Orleans when you had to explain to him about the paper bag test. Yeah. <laughs> so talk oh, yeah. a little bit yeah. about that. 
And interesting enough, um, you know, someone explained that to me. I mean, because in Indiana, I had never heard of the paper sack test. Mm-hmm. Huh? And so it was a friend of mine from Tennessee, white boy from Tennessee. You know, when I said I was moving down to New Orleans with my um, boyfriend, he's like, oh, Carolyn, you'll be okay. And I'm like, huh? He said, you passed the paper sack test. So I'm like, what the hell is a paper sack test? And he said, yeah, well, you know, when I was coming up in Tennessee, he said, um, the only black friends I could have were blacks who were lighter than a paper paper sack. And I was like, are you serious? I can't believe and blah, 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 blah. And he said, but Carolyn, you're moving to the South. He said, this is how it is. He said, so um, when you're driving with Vince, make sure you don't stop in any uh, small town that doesn't have a sidewalk or street light. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I getting myself? But for Vince, you know, moving to New Orleans, he's like, oh, yes, great, New Orleans. So he he, he just had no clue about um, race in America, which most people don't if you haven't uh, lived it. And I think if you haven't lived it on the side of Black folks, you don't understand what it's like. Okay, I say that, but I think we Black folks, we also don't understand that this is also a construction. Exactly. How how we are living out our Blackness is also a construction that has been imposed upon us. Exactly. And it took me leaving the States to, to start seeing that. But, uh, but yeah, my, my, uh, husband had no clue about race. The one thing I can say about the Dutch, um, the, or the Dutch people that I have come into contact, um, with is that they are truly willing to learn. They yeah. are willing okay. to listen and they are willing to consider that, yeah, okay, I've never, I, I never, um, knew that it was offensive. I never knew why black, um, Swartapit, black Pete, was offensive. Yes, for us, it's just, you know, how it was when we were kids. We've never even thought about this being offensive. We've never yeah. associated it with our Black friends or, or whatever. And they are truly um, willing to look at themselves and to question and challenge themselves. Not everybody, of course. But I understood um, recently someone told me that the Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, after uh, George Floyd was uh, mm-hmm. killed mm-hmm. Um, in the, the Black Lives Matter movement, <clears throat> where apparently he was quoted as saying, now I understand the the impact of Black Pete celebration. Mm. And I thought, okay, you know, right on, good. This, this, this is what we need for, we need for minds to change. So what what I think is fascinating, and we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but I think your story about being a black woman in the States and particularly about your college experience where you're kind of teeter-tottering between these two communities, you're going through all of these international experiences and like you're saying, by yourself, right? You're, you're doing this and reconstructing the identity that had been you know, conditioned for you. So when you're in Holland, everything is just torn apart. So I'm hoping that you can kind of talk a little bit about like that web of this is what you were told and this is what happened. And now it's unpacking all of that. I think it's so complex. I think what, funny enough, one of the main catalysts to how I started seeing myself um, differently came through my relationship um, with my husband and his family. You know, Vince has never, in the 20 some odd years that we've been together, has never called me out of my name. He has never even called me the N-word. He's never called me a black B. He is, we, you know, we've had our arguments. You know, we don't argue that much, but it has never become a racial thing, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the beginning, it had been, and I would not be with him, but it has never, ever been an issue. Um, and I, I love, you know, he's still a bit clueless. Let me just go ahead and, and say it about our kids. 
Um, and, and maybe I'm a little bit too um, extreme as well about our kids and, and, you know, claiming their blackness. You know, I tell them all the time, look, if you ever go to America, it's going to be different than Holland. You are going to be two black girls. And that, you know, it's, it's, that is very loaded. He doesn't see that, which he can't as a white male. Mm-hmm. He just does not see that in America, they will have to live with race. But at any rate, when I came here, his family, his parents, his sisters, um, their spouses welcomed me with open arms. I mean, open arms. I remember um, one of um, his little nieces, I think she was three at the time, I came here in November, so of course it was cold, and so I was always covered. And in the summer, we were with his sister and her two little kids, and I was playing with the little girl, Miraya. We were playing, I don't know what we were doing, um, play, kicking a ball or something. And we had been playing, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. And I kicked the ball to her, and she bent down and picked it up, and she looked at me. And she kind of looked at me up and down, you know, not not like the side eye, mm-hmm. but, you know, she just kind of looked at me. And she said, oh, you're brown all over. Not just my face, but you're brown all over. I was like, um, yeah. And she said, oh. And then she kicked the ball back to me. <laughs> I just, I was like, huh? And, well, you know, where she lives in the Netherlands... They're not used to seeing people of color. Oh, goodness. But yeah. for her, the thing that stood out more than anything was, oh, wh- okay, it's not just your face, but everything is brown on you. And that was that. And that's, that's how I feel being in the Netherlands, that people see me as a black woman. And they see me, once I start speaking Dutch, as, you know, obviously an American, an English-speaking Black woman. Mm. That's it. There is no early sexualizing. There is no, oh, you know, are you on welfare? There is no, have you, you know, are you educated? Um, There are those attachments that were there and pasted on my being when I was there. It might be different now. I'm talking about when I was there and how I experienced it. I didn't have that here. That was freeing. And that started as well, um, you know, with, with my husband's family. Yeah, I think, I think this was the part in the book where you were talking about experiencing motherhood. And you were saying Mm -hmm. that you had finally gotten to a place or at least an understanding where black was not synonymous with poverty. And that was very provocative. Well, that lesson I learned when I went to Mexico, uh, interesting enough, um, when I was in college, I was a junior. I think the summer after my junior year, I went to Mexico uh, to study I think Mexico was really the first time that I started to question how black womanhood was constructed in the United States um, because it was at odds with everything that I had learned. People were nice. Um, The Mexicans, they looked at me, of course, because they hadn't really ever seen a black woman before. Yeah. You know, there were kids in the neighborhood that whenever I came out, they would run over to me and they would follow me and, you know, yell my name because I made the mistake of telling them my name. (laughs) Uh, um, You know, I I am a foreigner here. They've never seen anyone like me, but I felt welcome. And so by the time I, um, you know, got to the Netherlands, uh, that that process had already begun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that process of, of questioning and challenging, because this is part a lot of what I did as a graduate student as well. See, I think this is amazing because maybe it does just start with questions. Right. You see something that's that's your reality, but you're questioning why that's the reality. So it's all of these like borders and boundaries. And I'm thinking a lot about even when your mom was like, you know, don't get you no black man. You need to go on a date a white man. You know, I've been married mm-hmm. twice to black men. 
I'm wondering about how, because you do have a comfort. You you had you had a lot of engagement outside of the black community early on. And and even just, you know, the friends that you're sitting with at the bar when you met Vince, they were even not black. So I'm wondering how much of your conditioning do you think impacted even your attraction to Vince, your husband? That's a good question. Because before I went to um, college, I think, you know, I, I had never dated anyone outside of my race. Um, and I never had any desire to. It's, it's not that I didn't think um, non-black men were not attractive, but it just didn't occur to me. And then, you know, you go to college and of course your experience broadens, I think in everything, not just, I mean, heck in college, that's when I started smoking. Um, (laughs) I never had any desire to smoke either. So definitely going away to college, being on my own, being able to, you know, make my own decisions, white men in particular had never shown interest in me mm-hmm. until I went to college. And so then, of course, yeah, you know, I, I experimented black men, white men, uh, you know, no, not that casually, you know, I, <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> you know, mom, if you're listening, you know, it wasn't about all that, but, and it was, um, you know, when I went to Washington DC, you know, I dated, um, you know, black men, I dated, you know, a Latin American, you know, man and, you know, uh, white men. And how much did that have to do with conditioning? A lot of it had to do with conditioning. Yeah. Um, because, you know, your, your mother, I think, especially for a girl, um, your mother is probably the, the greatest influence that you have, you know, particularly about what it means to be a woman, but definitely in my life. You know, she she was it. You know, there are a lot of things that I disagreed with her on, even, you know, the whole um, notion of um, white men versus black men. Mm -hmm. You know, my mother um, in the end, she was she was bitter. Um, she had two bad marriages. Of course, she blamed it on them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think my mother was also a very um, bitter woman, um, because, you know, in terms of relationships. I think my mother um, lived in a time when you couldn't be free, when black women mm-hmm. were even less free, yeah. you know, than we were when I was coming up. And she had no recourse. She, you know, what, what could she do living in, I, I, from what she told me, Indianapolis was extremely racist. She said she remembers a sign, um, Broad Ripple is, you know, this really, um, when I was there, this kind of, um, al- now alternative, maybe upscale section of the city with a lot of bars and, and restaurants and so forth. And there was a park there and she said she remembered a sign that said no dogs and either no inns or no coloreds allowed. So this was the Indianapolis my mother grew up in, you know, very, very, you know, racist. So, so I get it. I, I understand, you know, her, you know, maybe there were, um, you know, white men, um, that she was interested in, or maybe she wanted friends beyond her own community. Yeah. But she couldn't. It, there, there was no opening for that. You know, besides being bitter, I think, and besides, sorry, mom, you know, I, I, mean that with love. Mm. You know, I'm not going to talk badly about my mom Amen. Uh, anymore. <laughs> there, so she, she, you know, put a lot of her stuff on me and some of it um, was, you know, I found to be true. Some of it wasn't true. You know, um, how much of that affected my choice of a husband? You know, I don't know, probably a lot of it did. In the end, I stayed with Vince because I fell in love with him and because yeah. I love him yeah. um, and because, you know, what I tell him all the time, I can still laugh with him. And, and I felt at the very beginning I could be myself, yeah. you know, to the extent, you know, that that um, I could be myself with anybody. But, you know, it, it was safe. It was, you know, um, it felt good. Um, I was attracted to him. So, you know, in the Netherlands, um, funny enough, 
There are a lot of interracial couples of white Dutch and non-white um, women, whether it's, you know, African women, Middle East or of, um, Asian or from the Caribbean. You see interracial mixing a lot more in the Netherlands than you see in America. Yeah. See, I love all of this because one of the theories that I've been toying with, it's uh, called intergenerational mobility. And it basically is this concept about comparing your experience to your mother's experience or to your grandparents' experience. And they have these ways of measuring, like, what's the trajectory of, you know, your income based on your parents' or your parents' parents' education? You know, what does upward mobility look like when you're looking at this intergenerational comparison? And what I think what's interesting about your story and then also, you know, some of the folks that I'm talking about in my study is that what we're doing is it's our experience that's kind of changing the generational narrative because based on much of the the impact or at least the experience that you've had comparing yourself with your mother you've completely changed you know what you're what you're doing as far as mothering your own children and mm-hmm. yeah just even kind of thinking about some of the things where you know you're talking about how do you even talk to your daughter about race when you know in the Netherlands she's this but as soon as you take yourself to America you're a black woman and that's mm-hmm. just how that conditioning is so so you being a mother compared to the way that you were mothered it changes your whole generational narrative which i think is oh. a good thing oh. interesting thing a thing See, i don't know <laughs> Okay, so I, 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 um, that is a, a, an amazing um, uh, subject because what what that brings up with me um, is again this concept of the strong, independent Black woman. Mm-hmm. Because um, you know, right after my uh, little boy was born, and he'll be nine soon, you know, um, like two weeks after he was born, my father passed away very unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I went through a crisis um, and went into a, you know, really bad depression, which ended up being, you know, positive because I, you know, got help for it. Um, you know, I had lots of experiences with depression, but not knowing what it was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went into therapy for a couple of years, got back into that suitcase uh, and, and, and took everything out. Yeah. Okay, but my point is, I had um, said, okay, I am not going to work at all. So, you know, I had left the university, you know, I stopped writing, I stopped doing everything. And I said, okay, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. And for a few years, that's what I did. Oh, my goodness, if there was something that made me question myself as a strong, independent Black woman, (laughs) it was that. Because my mama told me, don't you ever depend on a man oh. and what was I doing depending on a man <laughs> and mm-hmm. for years this this just tore me down you know or I tore myself down how could you do this Carolyn how can you not work and still call yourself a black woman so it just brought back all of the thoughts or all of the experiences that I had had and being, you know, told, you oh, you're not black. You know, you don't talk like us. Oh, you're smart. You're, you're not really black. Mm-hmm. You date white men. Oh, you're so no matter what, you know, transgression I did, I guess, um, I, you know, it all came, the punishment was being kicked out of the black community. Yeah? <laughs> oh, they call it, they say your black card is revoked. Your black card is revoked. <laughs> Look, take it, take it all. Just take my soul, man. I handed it back. Like, you keep it. Y'all you know, right. this is the part in the in the book where you were talking about even you know being a mother and how you were beating yourself up because you felt like you were failing, you know, in motherhood, wanting a career, you know, still trying to show up in these very routine ways of doing your life before motherhood. And I was thinking you're exactly right, because when your only image is the strong black woman, you know, four kids, you know, your 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 mom, she has a job, she's, you know, doing enough, she's battling with mental illness, you know, and still not losing her kids. 
And then you're mm-hmm. dealing with one child. You want to work. You're getting backlash from your colleagues. You know, you quit a, you quit a class mm-hmm. that you clearly couldn't do. And it's like, yeah. but wait, now I'm not black enough. I'm not the epitome right. of that strong black woman. Right. It was all, and it was awful as well. It was, you know, you, I mean, look, I, I'll tell you, I mean, I was just everything that I ever, you know, believed and was told was just stripped away. And, and it, it's not pretty. I mean, you, you know, you don't want to be in that situation. I mean, it was embarrassing as well, you know, to, you know, not be able to, you know, to teach, you know, and there was a petition <laughs> in my class. They signed a petition. I'm like, what? Who does that? Who signs a petition about me being a bad teacher? Um, but it, it was absolutely awful. It was awful. Even, you know, you know, with, with motherhood and mm-hmm. feeling like I wasn't coping. Um, I didn't know I had with my first child, I had I was suffering from depression. How would I, how was I supposed to know that? I mean, actually I had postpartum depression with all my kids. And it was my mother who told me when I went um, and took my daughter, Chloe, back, you know, to see her. And I was telling her, she says, oh, baby, you know, you, you are depressed. She said, mm. like, Carolyn, this is depression. You need to go back and you need to go to the doctor and get some help. And it was my mother who told me mm. that, that, mm. you know, that I came back and I'm like, oh, okay. But um, so, yeah, that definitely tore at my, you know, that image um, and then, like I said, not working and that even more so probably um, because that has, you know, I've just even come out and, and sure I've been working, you know, the, the, you know, these past years, you know, self-employed as a coach and, and an intercultural trainer and, and yeah. doing things, but not having that steady salary has just put me through all sorts of tests and um, has made me question, you know, every part of myself and, and, and it's okay because, you know, I questioned it and I challenged it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, asked myself, so, you know, what makes, what, what is a strong independent black woman? Yeah. You know, what does yeah. that even mean? <laughs> and I don't want it to mean, you know, somebody who puts, who carries the world on her back. Amen. I don't want that. That's what my mother did. Yeah. Um, I don't want that, you know. I, so, you know, I have come to, you know, to form my own definition of what it means to be a strong, independent black woman. Yeah. Part of that does mean to lean on people, you know, to, if if my husband, you know, tells me, well, Carolyn, I only want you to work because you seem miserable not working. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's like, I don't care if you work or not, but it seems to me that you, you probably need it because you're not happy when you don't work. And look, when um, I was teaching at a post-secondary school a couple years ago, my daughters loved the two days that I wasn't here. Um, look, because, and they've asked me before, so mom, when are when you, you working? Outside again. I love it. And see, this is the part where I'm like, and I have to be mindful about my words because when I'm shouting, oh, that's amazing. I think what's amazing is the work that you're doing. Right. Because even in my mind, really much of your story is is forcing me to think about my own story because this is the work that I'm doing. And we, we talked about this before, but your book is pretty much a dissertation. Like the yeah. way that you the way that you're analyzing, the way that you're comparing, it is a dissertation. But even your even what you're saying now, intergenerational mobility for you is having to reconstruct your identity by unpacking that strong black independent woman. And because of the way that you saw your mother wearing it, which in the book, you're even talking about her mother wearing it Mm -hmm. and how when you put it on, you didn't want to put those same clothes on. You wanted it to look completely different. I think that's amazing. I think that's the work that we have to do because otherwise that narrative goes from one generation to the next. You know, these issues, it just keeps passing on. So this is the work. And and incidentally, that's, um, and not just my mother, but everybody in my community when I was growing up, we were all, my friends and I, and and, and Mike, we were all, they all had single mothers. I don't think there was a father in that home. Oh my goodness, you're uh, telling my story. um, You're telling my story. (laughs) I mean, we were all in the same boat. 
But this is the work that I have. Um, I swore if I ever had children, um, I would not put um, racial baggage on them. Mm. On the one hand, um, when I talk to them about their identity, also as black women, they are just like, oh, please. You know, they just, they can't hear it. And that saddens me. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, but you guys are also black women. This is also your heritage. Yeah. This is also your gift. Huh? But it's also what I consciously did. That's why um, part of why I wanted to raise my children here and not in the United States, because I don't want to put my stuff on them, mm -hmm. as my mother put her stuff on me, as her mother did on her. And, and my husband and I agree with this. We want them, we want to build in them, to construct in them uh, such a strong sense of self-worth, not based on how much money you have or yeah. what color or what kind of hair, but what Dr. Martin Luther King said, the content of your character. character. Yeah. We are building character here. Uh, quote, um, something I read in Michelle Obama's book, um, Becoming. She wrote, my mother did not raise me to be a child. And that yeah. has stuck yeah. with me because I'm like, when my kid, when my kids, you know, start complaining because they have chores, because let me tell you, a lot of Dutch kids don't have chores. No Mama does everything. I'm kind of like, oh no. Look, <laughs> y'all got dish weeks. <laughs> and if you don't have a dish week, you got to clean the table, you know, because I am not raising my children to be children. Mm -hmm. I am raising these girls and that little boy to be able to go out in the world and not let the world tell them who they are. Amen. Amen. I want them to go out there and say, hey, yeah, I got a black American mama. I got a white Dutch father. I speak all these languages. I'm lazy. I'm this, I'm that. <laughs> you go out there and tell the world who you are and they will treat you accordingly. Yeah. Don't make, don't do what I did. You know, I, you know, I had to learn the hard way and may, and I'm sure on some things they'll have to learn the hard way as well. But it, it, if I have anything to do with it, it won't be that, yeah. that sense of who they are. Goodness, I love that. So one of the things that I, and, and I think it's kind of ascribed, right? Because you don't identify your work as a life history, but just with the qualitative research that I do and um, really much connected with the study that I have as well, I see your book as the epitome of a life history. Um, so I'm wondering, and especially for folks who are interested in doing this type of work of unpacking their lived experiences, really questioning their identity and how it was formed or reformed. Um, even in the book, you're talking about turning points, which I thought was significant because that's what I do in my work. What was the turning point? You know, what, what kind of got you there? Um, your book is like, it's going to be my template for my dissertation. Wow. But I'm wondering, um, because you decided to take yourself through that process, for the folks who are interested in doing this work, can you kind of walk us through what the process was like for you? Is this journaling? Is this actually having conversations with your mother? Is this you writing memories and going back and reading old journals? Like what, what was this process as far as going back to childhood? It, for me, it started off, I had a lot of recurring memories. It started by just saying, okay, so let me write that down. So, you know, I remember, you know, my mother having a nervous breakdown. I mean, this was a recurring memory. And I said, okay, well, Carolyn, just, you know, for 10 minutes, just write about that. Just, mm. just whatever comes up, write about it. And I did. So I, I took, you know, most of, a lot of the, the memories of my childhood were very troubling, you know, and, and a lot of people I'm finding out in doing some workshops about, and I love what you say, like life history, mm -hmm. um, because I considered it memoir or life story, but, but I really do love it's, it's yeah. a life history. So that's how it started with me. It, what I'm finding out is a lot of people, okay, I can't say especially a lot of black women, we have so much in, in, in those suitcases, yeah. so much, a lot of pain. And I think one thing that does kind of stop us from going back to that is this image of having to be strong, 
to me, strength is you, there is nothing more a testament to strength than being able to look at the pain. If you can do that, then there is nothing you can't accomplish. My mother used to say childbirth. If you can, you know, bear the, the pain of childbirth, you can bear anything. Um, well, <laughs> I had gallstones. <laughs> so that was worse than having children, <laughs> the pain. I mean, you have never known pain. But I found as well, um, going back, you know, and looking at your childhood and, you know, just being with that tragedy, the pain, that there is nothing harder than that. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was about taking the memories one at a time. So it was a slow process because every time I wrote about one of these memories, I had to take a few days off because <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I'm like, Ooh, I already I know. <laughs> Look, I, I, I ended up in therapy after, yeah. you know, after I'd written the book. Oh, yeah. I, I called um, myself doing the work because I'm also I'm an avid journal writer. So I've been writing in my journal since I was 12 years old and I still have oh, all wow. of them. So oh, it was wow. actually like a yeah, it was a class project. And I said, you know, because this is when I'm trying to decide my methodology for this study. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, if I'm going to ask other folks to go and dig into their childhood, I should probably do it myself. Carolyn, I was at the bar, like reading, reading the journal, drinking my beer, you know, trying to journal about my feelings. I'm like these, I don't, I wrote them in the journal and like tucked it away so I didn't have to feel it. And just the emotions that came up with, you know, reading handwriting from my, you know, 14, 15 year old self memories that are still relevant today, some ideas that I still think that are still alive and well, you know, existing today. Like, so you've been thinking this way since you were 15, really? (laughs) So it's, it's real work. It's, and it's, it's soul work. It's heartfelt work. And for folks who are willing to do it, the payoff, and I think that's why I'm so attracted to your book because it's like so authentic. Like you're saying, you're just opening yourself up. This is me. I'm not talking about all black folks. I'm not talking about, you know, a whole time span. I'm talking about me and where I've been. And I think that the work, the process, like everything you're doing is absolutely beautiful. Um, what helped me, you know, to make this a story with journaling, you're just writing for yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I think when you, if you're doing a life history, it helps to find someone, maybe a, a, a greater purpose. Because that completely changes how you start seeing all of, all of these experiences. Because it's kind of like whenever I sat down to write, I imagined like a conversation like this. I'm just sitting down with somebody and I'm talking about my life, huh? Mm-hmm. And, um, so it helped me to take a step away from the, the, the experiences. So I could take a little distance and be able to write about it because I was writing it for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So if I'm writing it for somebody else, I'm not going to completely break down. Right. I did that in the three or four days after <laughs> I wrote, you know, I could have my breakdown because, you know, under the weight of the emotions. But, you know, for people wanting to do this work, just think of, you know, who would I want to read this? Life's because you write a life history typically not for yourself. If you're going to leave it for yourself, journal, um, which is such a powerful way, which you know, to, you know, start doing this work. But if you want to take it a step further and make it a story, because typically in a journal, you, you don't always make a story out of yeah. it. But if you are making, turning it into a story with your, you know, your desire, your struggle, your outcome, you are going to look at the contents of your life with a completely different eye. And I think being able to see it with a completely different eye is going to help you to keep going because you realize, hey, this is for something that's a bit higher than these experiences in and of themselves. I recognized early on, I was like, you know, I really think that I can inspire people um, because if they know that I came from this and that I could get out here Mm. and still live a life 
that I wanted to live, right? They can do it too. Whatever it is, their life, they have to determine that for themselves. But I am living the life. Um, I'm doing all of the things that I want to do, um, having the all of the experiences that I want to have. So that to me is, wow, um, isn't that, I think for my life, that's what it's all about. I love that advice. When you were <laughs> writing your book, who who do you believe you were writing it for? Black women, Black American women. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to say to each and every black woman, hey, throw your ideas of racism out the door, you know, throw your ideas that, you know, you are invisible out the door, throw all the ideas that you're nothing out the door. And well, you step out the door, put all that away, travel, preferably outside of the United States. But it was to just, you know, you know, if there was a whole room full of black women and just say all of this, that's who my audience was. Women who were, you know, probably experiencing some of the same things that I was going through, feeling there was so much more to their lives and to themselves than just this small hole they were placed in, you know, so for any woman, um, black woman who felt like that, that's who I was writing to. Wow. I love that. Carolyn Venice Vines. This has been absolutely amazing. I have to thank you so much for taking time to be on Abroad in Education, for being vulnerable, for being open. This is my thank you to you. This is, uh, I don't want it to end. Um, <laughs> This has also been for me just, you know, so uh, eye-opening. I've even still learned a few things and, you know, I, and it's my story. Um, so, you know, thank you um, also for your, your questions. More than that, for your curiosity and just wanting to know more and, you know, also kind of pushing me to, to give you more. And so also thank you for, you know, also showing me that this, you know, book is not dead, that it's still alive oh, and yes. that it is relevant. <laughs> yes. um, and also to someone of your generation as well, because it wasn't young black women I was necessarily thinking about, but, you know, a bit you know, older, but thank you for showing me that it is relevant to younger women as well. Thank you. And keep doing this because this is so big, what you're doing with your interviews. It's so big. Amen. Thank you. Abroad Education is created by Tiffany Michelle Smith. Lady Justice, the song that you're listening to, was written and produced by Rillionaire Dreams. You can get his Postcards album on SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you download your favorite podcast. Let's keep the conversation going and follow me on Instagram at abroad underscore in underscore ed. And you can also access the website at abroadeneducation.com.